Today, I had the honor of talking with Bill Benjamin. Bill is one of the current managing partners at Galena Capital, which is the only FINRA registered investment bank headquartered in Idaho. Bill has an extensive background working in financial services. Prior to Galena, he has served as the managing director in the investment banking division for Piper Jaffray, the head of branch development for UBS's wealth management department, and was the CEO of U.S. Bank's broker-dealer and RIA division. In our conversation today, Bill and I talked about all things selling your business. Bill and his partners at Galena spend a lot of their time advising on sell-side M&A transactions. Bill has a lot of unique insights on different factors that business owners should consider when selling their business. I hope you enjoy this episode with Bill Benjamin. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Drew. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So today I was uh, hoping we could talk through all things selling your business and, you know, from the initial steps of deciding that business owners, you want to sell their business all the way through the process until you get to signing the dotted line and the deal's complete. But before we dive into those details, I was wondering if you could just give us a background on your career in financial services. And I personally think it's real interesting because you've been in so many different areas of finance. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. I, um, you know, I really, I started my career in sales for IBM and uh, moved into sales leadership, went off and got my MBA and came out as an investment banker for a firm called Piper Jaffrey, now called Piper Sadler. Um, I did that for uh, about eight and a half years and decided that uh, being a father to my kids um, was an important move for me uh, versus um, being gone almost through all the all the days of the week, uh, but for the weekends. Um, and so I moved over to the wealth management side of the business, the financial advisor side of the business. Um, Piper ended up selling that business to UBS. I started commuting again to UBS, but helped them restructure the United States and then moved over uh, to run the broker-dealer and registered investment advisor for U.S. Bank. Um, did that for a number of years. Uh, had a lot of fun in that arena and um, got this interesting call to come out to Boise to run an insure tech company. Uh, something in the insurance side I was not as familiar with, but um, really enjoyed the, uh, the company, the challenge, the growth, uh, and then started an investment bank about a year after that with my partner, Jerry Sturgill. And what, so yeah, let's talk about Galena. Galena Capital is Idaho's first FINRA registered investment bank. Can you just tell us more about what prompted you and Jerry to start Galena? It was interesting. We were both at a at a breakfast meeting. Um, there was a, another company forming, um, not to do investment banking, but really, uh, you know, to help companies as they go through strategic decisions and growth and um, and looking at strategic alternatives. Uh, when we met each other, we went and had lunch and he said, why don't we start the first FINRA registered investment bank headquartered in the state of Idaho? And I questioned him a little bit on that and he walked me through all of the, the growth um, across the state and really in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the number of companies that were here, the number of companies that uh, were founded um, by people that were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, didn't have transition plans in place, and 
were looking to liberate wealth, um, write their next chapter. And as I started to think through that, I thought, wow, we can stay fairly local, um, not have to travel all over the world and, uh, you know, help in economic growth and development and jobs and, you know, in in Idaho, but also in the Pacific Northwest. And so um, so we kind of shook hands and did it. And uh, um, now we're up and running. I, give you, I gave you my background. Let me give you a little of Jerry's and the rest of the team. So Jerry was an attorney. He was an attorney for Latham and Watkins in New York. He did a lot of, um, you know, financial deals, financial services industry deals, uh, led their financial services practice, uh, did a lot of KKR, Carlisle kinds of deals. He was doing deals around the world. Um, he decided to come back to Idaho, you know, so uh, his mom, who was sick, get to know the the grandkids better, and uh, he wanted to raise his kids here. Um, he came back, uh, you know, helped start the corporate practice at Stoll Reeves, and then uh, ended up moving off and buying and selling companies, went to Headwaters, which got acquired by Capstone, and that's about the time we met and decided to start Galena Capital Partners. Um, we brought on uh, Jeff Anthony. Jeff um, was with the Forsman family office, uh, so really on the buy side, but he then ran um, both public and private companies. Uh, he is up in Coeur d'Alene and represents us up in the northern part of the, the uh, geography we focus on. Uh, and then Arna Vermani is our superstar analyst. Uh, he came out of the College of Idaho. Uh, it's always nice when the president of the the college calls and says, "You got to, you got to interview this kid. He's a student athlete. He's a phenomenal student. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's highly engaged in the school and helping other people um, meet him. We we met him. We hired him as an intern, and then we hired him full time. He's doing a great job for us." Um, and then we have uh, uh, Juan Carlos Duque. Um, Juan Carlos came out of the buy side, also out of the Pritzker family office. He's actually transitioning back to the buy side, uh, which is great. But he is, uh, you know, advising and working with us and a, a very bright, talented, uh, I'll say young man, because I think we're all young, a little older than you and Arnab, but... Um, and so that is our uh, that is our team. We focus on mergers and acquisitions, um, raising growth capital, both equity and debt, uh, strategic advice. So helping companies and boards think about what their alternatives are, um, whether they should raise capital, whether they should buy a company, whether they should sell their company. A lot of times we get you know called in when a company has knocked on the door and said, "Hey, we're interested. You know, would you like to talk?" Um, or a company's thinking through its alternatives to either capture an opportunity uh, or to kind of think about, given current economic conditions, um, what options they should be looking at. And then restructuring, and, and, and that's related, uh, but it can be, you know, a company where a partner's buying out a partner, you know, a partner passes and now there's estate things to work through, um, uh, it could be, you know, the, the capital um, stack is out of alignment for the current economic environment or a company gets distressed and we help them through a, you know, a distressed situation, which could mean a 363 uh, sales situation. Um, so those would be the things that we focus on 
you know, relative to industries, um, you know, we've worked in financial services, in food, in agriculture. Uh, and, and speaking of that, I forgot to mention Sky Root. Um, Sky has recently joined us. He's got Root Agricultural Advisory, but he's also, uh, you know, part of our team on the investment banking side and really covers, he grew up on a very large farm. Um, he then uh, got involved in water rights, uh, and then he worked um, for TIA uh, and Nuveen um, acquiring properties. Uh, he does farm management. Um, he's one of the largest farm brokers in the country, but he, he really works across the supply chain in the agriculture business and has been a great addition to the team. Um, so we work across multiple industries from natural resources to clean tech to technology to um, uh, food and uh, uh, manufacturing, especially manufacturing. So that that's a fire hose, but that's kind of what we're all about. And is there a particular size of company when we think of just, you know, revenue or enterprise value? Is there a, is there a bread and butter to the size of companies you all are working with? Yeah, great question. Um, we would call ourselves mid-market. I would really define that as the upper end of um, small and the lower end of mid. Um, so call it for companies that get valued in what I'll call traditional metrics. A lot of times it's EBITDA or cash flow. Uh, we would say kind of in that two and a half million of EBITDA up to about 25 million of EBITDA. We can do larger deals, but we think, you know, when we look at uh, the businesses in this uh, upper kind of called Pacific Northwest um, region and Idaho in particular, um, we think that's going to be the lion's share of what we do, and it has been so far. Um, uh, but there are industries or, or sectors that don't get valued on those kinds of cash flow metrics. They get valued on revenue. So it's not a hard and fast rule. Like we're raising money for a company in the medical device space right now, um, that is pre-FDA approval. And that company does not have revenue, but it's got a huge market opportunity and uh, um, it's got IP, it's got patents that um, are very exciting. And so I'd say there's always uh, exceptions to the rule, you know, technology companies, especially in recurring revenue models and medical device companies uh, tend not to get valued um, on EBITDA, they tend to get valued on, on revenue or, or future revenue opportunities. So those would be the exceptions on that size that I gave you. Great. I was thinking we could now dive into just the process of selling a business. I think it's oftentimes a lot more rigorous than most people think when they decide they want to sell. But let's start out like, why would a business owner decide to sell their business? What are, what are some of the things they should be thinking about? Well, it's a great question, and there's a number of things. I mean, one, um, we all have to realize business owners have a lot of emotion tied to their business generally, so it's a tough decision, right? Um, it's been a, a labor of love. Uh, they put many, generally many years, blood, sweat, and tears into it, been through the ups and downs, and so um, we're sensitive to that. There are a number of things, though, that you start to think about um, over time, and uh, and that can be, what's the market doing? What kind of interest is out there? What kind of consolidation do we see going on? What kind of resources do these consolidators have 
that might give them competitive advantage that we need to be aware of and do we have the resources you know to compete um you know given what market dynamics are going on and so i'd say market timing is uh you know just kind of looking out over the horizon and seeing what's going on and where you think you can really drive growth or where you might want to play with another um, uh, company to go capture uh, value, right? Um, you might get an unsolicited offer and um, that just forces you to think about, well, should I do this or not? Uh, you know, you could be an entrepreneur who says, I got one or two more of these in me. I just, I love starting companies and um, this one's up and running. I like where it is. Uh, I really want to go start the next one. Um, there can be burnout, right? Like you're, uh, you've been at it a long time and you want to kind of enjoy the, you know, the fruits of your labor and do something completely different. It could be health reasons or you want to retire and, um, and you, you don't have a succession plan in place. And so you, you want to think about, you know, what your alternatives are. So there's a, there's a number of reasons that would be kind of generally what we see if, uh, if that answers your question. Yeah. And I, I, th I always find it interesting. Many of the business owners that I come across a lot of times, they don't even know what their business is worth. And sometimes when they just find out what the potential valuation of the company is, it sparks immediate interest. So is that similar to some of your experience that you've had with clients and is starting with a valuation maybe like a good first step to even see if it's possible? I would say first step, um, I think it's an important part of the early step, right? I, th I, think, I think from an entrepreneur's perspective, there's a number of things that he or she probably wants to think about. And uh, valuation is, is obviously a big one. Um, and we can help them, you know, generally we're gonna give them a range uh, given current market conditions and, you know, what I'll call precedent transactions or precedent um, valuation metrics, right? Um, the story matters and and we'll get into that um, uh, later. Uh, we'll make sure we get into it later. But, um, you know, kind of history and future opportunity and a, a number of things will drive uh, that value either higher or lower, Right. So valuation is important, but I think that kind of getting yourself to the point of um, being open to consider what you want to do um, is really important also. And what you want your legacy to be. Right. Like I remember talking to a, a company in town um, where they said, look, I am interested in selling, but my employees got me here. And I want to. I want someone who's going to buy us, who's going to take care of my employees, because the only reason I'm in the position I am in is because, because of them, right? So there's a number of things to be thinking about. Um, you know, valuation being an important one, and and you know, one of, you know, I'll call it a handful of really important ones. But some people will give up on some value to achieve some other legacy goal. Uh, you know, so some people don't take the highest offer. They take the offer that meets, you know, what they really want for employees or really what they want for the community, um, those kinds of things. I think this is a good segue into the next 
topic, but selling doesn't always mean a 100% cash buyout for the biggest offer. So can you walk us through what the different ways to sell businesses are? Yeah. Um, you know, so there's some dynamics to go around it that we just talked about. We spent a little more time on that. Um, uh, but um, generally, people will look to sell 100% of their business or they'll sell a majority of their business. You know, I would also say selling a minority of your business is also an option. But generally, when we talk about selling your business, you're selling a majority or 100%. Um, when you do that, there are different ways um, transactions can be structured. They can be asset sales. They can be equity, 100% uh, equity. Um, you sell all the equity in your company. Um, you can receive cash, which is typically ideal, uh, or you can receive some combination of cash and equity. Um, depending on the seller's desires, they might want a second bite of the apple. And um, even if they sold 100% of the business, you know, to be retained, to have some employment contract, to, you know, to have some equity in, in the new co or the new entity, uh, and then know that there's you know, another bite some, at some point in the future, another bite at the apple. And, and there's many examples where the second bite of the apple is bigger than the first, right? So, you know, so that could be um, selling 100% of your business, but also getting some kind of uh, employment contract that would include equity in, in the new entity. You could sell a majority of your business um, where you, you know, you retain an equity position in the new business um, you decide whether or not you want to participate in the new business, but if you're going to retain a part of your equity, you got to be very careful around that. Um, if you decide not to stay in leadership, because you know you're giving part of your value to whomever is going to run that new business. So generally, we're going to work with the you know work with the client, our client, who's the seller, and walking through those pros and cons. Um, if you sell a majority uh, or even 100%, you got to think about um, structure of deals. You know, so you want to minimize your risk, especially post the transaction, where now someone else has a majority of the business and can make the decisions and allocate resources. And so when you think about earnouts, you got to really think about what that means. Um, you know, you got to think about uh, what your role is and what resources you have if you're staying on board. Um, and, and in that earnout, there's generally metrics you have to meet. And so you want to make sure you're in, you've got enough control that you can meet those things. Um, and so we'll work, we'll work with a client on, you know, all of those kinds of what I'll call the levers that you typically see in, uh, you know, in a deal. Can you walk us through what, a, an example of an earnout? how one might be structured? Yeah. Um, what an earnout is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what you might see in a transaction, I'm just going to make numbers up. You know, I'm going to buy your business for 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, but 20% of that consideration is going to go into escrow for some period of time. You know, you might see it 18 months, you might see 12 months, sometimes you see them longer and you want to negotiate them obviously as short as you can. And then you want the criteria. So a lot of times it'll be um, growth based or a revenue number base um, or some kind of 
revenue and earnings base, um, but there will be you know some kind of metric that you have to hit to get that earnout money back. Um, you know if you're you know if you negotiate it, it can be just time based, but uh, but generally there's some kind of triggering event which would be you know kind of a revenue growth, a profit growth, a cash flow growth, something like that that would trigger the payment of that earnout. Um, so those, you know, the earnouts are all part of the negotiation. They can range, um, you know, in terms of a number of items, but we're going to work with the company to make sure that we minimize, uh, you know, the amount in escrow or in earnout, uh, the timing of it, and what the triggering events are of it. We, we want to minimize the risk to the seller or to our client. How much of the decision when you're deciding between a cash buyout, seller financing, earnout, how much of that decision is like the seller's ideal outcome versus the acquirer's offer, or is it usually somewhere in the middle of those two? I'd say it, you know that's all a part of the negotiation. Um, we're going to try to work as much as we can, uh, obviously, to ad- advantage our client. Right and and work through that negotiation. Ideally, you're running a competitive process where you have multiple bids for the company. Um, you know, if if a if your client, um, uh, well, w- what we would share with our client is we're going to run a very disciplined process, which we'll get to in a bit. We want multiple bidders, and if the bidders know an investment bank's involved, they know they can't bottom fish. Right. Um, once once we get, you know, the bids, so we're going to set impending e- events. Right. There's a the calendar. Here's when you have to have an indication of interest in, you know, we're going to select, you know, one or more potential buyers at that point to come in and do due diligence. But we we want them to all know it's competitive. So they have to be on their best behavior. Uh, then, depending on their indication of interest and the structure of their deal, We'll start the negotiation process. The client will be involved at every step of the way. So we'll guide them through the pros and cons of the different offers. Hopefully there are multiple. Um, and then we'll work with them on you know what meets their needs, right? And so uh, that part becomes the negotiation. So uh, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I didn't. So who, once you walk through some of those things, who who are the potential buyers well um it's it's a uh, it's a great question we, if we're involved in the process we're going to go out to i i typically think of it in three buckets of potential buyers um there's a strategic buyer so someone in your industry or in a related industry um who is interested in you because you bring something of strategic value to them it could be distribution it could be a product that fills a gap for them you know, it could be, you know, your intellectual property and patents you have, you know, there could be a number of reasons why a strategic buyer might want you. There's also then a financial buyer. And that could be a pure like a PE firm or, you know, someone purely looking at you from a financial perspective, and and they're going to they're going to look at you in terms of what they can do in terms of uh, taking out costs and you know growing the top line and, and therefore um, the cash flow and then they they look to sell the business you know some number of years down the line 
because they came in and they made it better, right? And then there's what I call, and so typically strategic buyers are going to pay more because there's synergy value. Typically financial buyers are going to pay less because they're just purely looking at financials. I say typically, it's not always the case. But then there's this bucket I call the hybrid buyer. And that is generally a, a, strate or a financial buyer that has a platform company. So if you think of PE for firms, they might want to start consolidating an industry where they see opportunity. And, um, and when they do that, they'll have you know, a company that they bought and now they're going to snap in other companies into that company. Uh, that to me is a hybrid buyer where there is strategic or synergy value. And what we do representing the seller is we're trying to capture as much of that synergy value as we can. Uh, so we'll work with our client on that. Do you ever help with internal transitions? We'll help with internal transitions where there's a transaction to be you know, had. So like a partner buying out a retiring partner or a partner buying out a partner where that other partner wants to go do something different, right? You know, that could be, you know, an internal transition, um, you know, so we'll, you know, we'll work on that where there is um, a transaction to be had. Okay. Some examples of financial buyers would be like private equity, family offices. Is that what you're referring to, financial buyers? Yeah. Uh, you know, those are generally, you know, the main buckets. Um, you've got private equity firms. Uh, you know, you've got family offices or multifamily offices that are being, you know, led by an organization representing all those family offices. Um, but, but generally it's someone, you know, like that, who's very interested in the business. Uh, they, they, uh, you know, fam a lot of family offices will say, we don't have a hold period. You know, we're really looking for meaning for the family. Um, you know, something that's long, longer term, you know, some aren't like that, but, but many are. And then, you know, PE buyers, you know, some will, will do that. And then some will will really say we've got a five to seven year hold period is typical. Um, you know, we've raised a fund, we've got limited partners, we've got to meet certain criteria for them. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that, that's typically what we're talking about on the financial buyer side. How, how do you walk small business owners and specifically like local small business owners that have a really heavy local presence um, a lot of these owners that I talk to, they kind of have a fear of selling out to private equity because they feel they just get tossed in their system to be spun off three years down the road in fear of losing kind of that longevity and culture in the community. How do you guide people through that transition with a buyer like that? It's a really important question and, you know, something that that we with the company will go through um, – due diligence on the potential buyer, like the potential buyer is going to do due diligence on the company, right? We want to understand all of that relative to the business owner's desires, right? Um, some business owners are like, just go find me the biggest bid. I want the most value for my company I can get. Some say, um, get me the right bid that takes care of these goals I have, you know, post my leaving the company kind of the legacy goals, right? 
Um, and so we're going to work with that. We're going to work with that buyer, you know, to really meet that buyer's needs and then protect the buyer in the negotiation in terms of um, the terms and conditions, you know, the details. But we do that with a team. It's not just us, right? Uh, there's a corporate attorney involved. There's, you know, a, 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 an accounting group involved. There's a financial advisor like yourself involved. I mean, all these people are really important parts of the team that we want involved at the earliest stages, um, you know, to help guide the client and uh, and make sure that we we all come to the the win win we're looking for. What what are these buyers looking for in companies? Are there a few key components that they're looking at when they're deciding even if they want to acquire? Yeah, a lot of times I I, I tell the um, you know the leadership team. You, you know, you can put yourself in the shoes of a buyer because in in effect, you've built this company by having to deploy capital and resource um, in opportunities that you think are going to provide you a greater return than the capital or the resource you deployed, right? Buyers tend to look at it a similar way. Now, you know, they've got in most cases, a lot of transaction history and the devil's in the details of that, right? So, um, uh, but I would say, you know, we're going to leverage the leadership team's, you know, knowledge, um, and we're going to bring to it our, you know, our experience and what buyers look for, right? And and we're going to help build the story that connects both. It, it's really important. The story matters, and the financials and the story have to be aligned, right? I mean, they've, they've just got to be aligned, and we're going to look for all the squishy parts and make sure that, you know, we put the seller in the best position of success. So what are the buyers looking for? They like big markets. Um, they like growing markets. Um, it's not to say that's the only thing they'll buy in, uh, but... They like that. They like they like to see some form of competitive advantage, which could be a patent. It could be, you know, your strategic relationships. It could be, you know, anything that gives you some kind of competitive advantage. They want to see that you've grown or that you're growing, right? Um, now, buyers don't all require what I what I just said, uh, but it plays into the valuation, right? So I'm giving you kind of like Here's here are the things that enhance uh, value and what they look for. Um, they want to see profitability and cash flow. Um, they want to see synergies with, you know, what they what they have or their ability to kind of with their experience. A lot of these buyers have, even if they're on the PE side, a lot of them have uh, experience um, either as board members or having run a company that they that they sold. Right, and so they know how to look at a company. They they bring a financial expertise or some kind of operating expertise, and they see this opportunity to find ways um, to increase value, either on the what I'll call the growth or the revenue side, or on the operating efficiency side. Um, and then if if they're going to retain you, which many cases, especially on the financial buyer side, 
you know, they'd prefer to keep the existing management team for some period of time to create a runway or transition period if, if the if management wants to leave. But they want to know that they've, they're buying a talented team. And, um, and, and that's where they give you that second bite of the apple opportunity. So those would be some of the, you know, some of the categories of things that they look for um, uh, uh, when they make their decisions. Do you advise your clients and sellers to work, if they want to at least, clean up some of these areas that you just mentioned to prepare for a selling? Like, hey, Maybe you should spend the next six to eighteen months in your business. Like, you can you can clean up some of your profitability by cutting whatever it is, making the financials look better. There's some other things you can do internally. Do you do you recommend preparing to sell, or is it just kind of you take what you get? Nope. Uh, we it's a great question. We recommend preparing to sell, and typically, a, a you know one of our clients is going to have. Um, you know, valuation thoughts. They're going to have, you know, goals that they want for their company. We're going to bring to them, here's how the buyers are going to look at what you just showed us, right? You know, a lot of times we want to hear the story. Um, we're going to look at the financials before, because the financials by themselves tell a story, right? Um, the story on top of it helps, you know, create a more full picture. And so, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to look at financials. We're going to dig into them. We're going to, we're going to look at what's moving and why we're going to dig into why with the company. Um, there's no perfect situation, right? So I don't want anyone to kind of walk away from this thinking we got to be perfect. You don't, but we have to have a story that makes sense. So if you have an off quarter or an off half year or an off year, um, We'd rather be years ago versus current, but, uh, but we're going to work with that company and we're going to help that company see these are the things we need to get in place to put you in the best position. So some companies don't have good financial controls. That can be, you know, that can, you know, that can queer a deal very quickly, right? So we're going to want to make sure that we've got financial controls in place. Um, we're going to want to make sure that we've put the company in the best, best position. We ideally, they will not have heard a question that we haven't asked them. And so they'll be prepared when they're sitting in front of potential buyers to tell a story in a more net crisp way. Now we can't guarantee that. And sometimes the questions come in a different format. So it might not sound like the same question, but we want to, we want to thoroughly, um, uh, put the company in the best position of success going through all of, you know, all of these things ahead of time. Um, and if we don't think they're ready, we're going to tell them that. And it could be a quarter, it could be multiple quarters. Um, uh, or we just like, like I was working with a company, uh, not that I want to say six, nine months ago where the two, the two owners wanted to sell and, you know, they had a valuation target. This company was kicking off a lot of cash, um, which is great. Um, but given the, you know, given uh, the, the growth rate and the current industry situation, I said, you know, I recommended that they hold off. 
And, um, you know, after a few hours of discussion around that, they, you know, they finally said, we understand, we agree, here's what we're going to do. And I ran into one of the owners not that long ago, and he said, thank you, right? You helped us get through it. You know, we really had a desire, but we're now in a better position. Um, we're going to grow this thing for another couple of years, and, uh, and then we'll be back. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to be up front. Like we're not going to try to waste anyone's time, nor do we want to waste our time. Right. But certainly we don't want to waste our clients time. So we're going to work with them to put them in the best position of success. That's great. I know we've already touched on some of these, but what should, what else should business owners be thinking about when they're looking for a buyer? We've already talked like, Hey, if you want top dollar, that, that may determine what type of buyer we're going after if we want the best succession for our employees and a smooth transition in that sense. Um, we might look at a certain type of buyer, but what are there any other things we should be thinking about or that owners should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, once you get an offer or offers, um, the uh, as I said earlier, the devil's in the details, right? Like, one offer might have, like, we're working on a deal right now where, uh, you know, I, an offer came in that was a stock deal versus cash. And we told them that won't work. And so they came back with a cash deal, which um, is what the company was seeking. But they came in with a three-year escrow, right? Well, three years is a long time, especially if, you know, the buyer owns the majority of the company is going to determine where the assets, where the, where the capital and the resources get deployed. Right. And so we say that doesn't work. Right. So, so, you know, there's a lot to a deal. It's not just price. A lot of times. I mean, if, if that, if the, if the company has a desire, we want to hit this price, we're going to try to jump over that bar but we want to make sure the company understands that the T's and C's of the purchase agreement matter and, and not done correctly, there can be a lot of risk and a lot of risk that claws back some of that value or they don't achieve that value if there's a, you know, if there's an escrow, um, a holdback. Um, so we're going to work with them on, you know, on all those components. And, and Drew, I want to make sure I've answered your question. A, you're asked a really important question. There's a lot that goes into a successful transaction. And so um, I want to make sure I've, I've answered your question there. No, that was great. What, what are the most common valuation metrics or just valuation techniques that buyers use when valuing a business? Yeah, so... Um, Typically, you're looking at precedent transactions, if there are precedent transactions. Uh, you know, some industries, you don't have that luxury. What, what you want to ideally find in a perfect world is you find a pure play transaction that's happened in the recent past. Um, you know, pure play meaning same industry, same kind of growth rates, and you, you never find a pure play, right? But you want to get as close to you know, pure play as you can. So we're scouring M&A transactions. I mean, we, 
subscribe to a number of databases um, that provide us this kind of information. Uh, so we're looking at M&A transactions in the industry or close to the industry. We want to get as close as we can to the company we're representing and as near as we can in terms of time for these transactions. So we can say, here are the multiples, either revenue and or EBITDA, that these companies sold for, where that information is publicly available. You know, here are the, you know, here are the, you know, the kind of the fact pattern of the companies that sold, um, you know, kind of look at their revenue, if we can get it, you know, their growth rate, their, right, any IP. We're going to learn as much as we can to be able to connect it to why those multiples might make sense. A lot of times we can't get that. So we're coming up with, you know, more of a range um, because we don't get, you know, those pure plays or what I'll call really solid kind of like core in the industry uh, kinds of thing. And a lot of times the numbers aren't available. Um, uh, but we're looking for precedent M&A transactions. We then look at um, public companies in the same industry and what they trade for. And, uh, and then, you know, we look at the um, illiquidity risk of that adjustment and then the, you know, the control position. You know, so we're, we're playing around with, with multiples. We're also digging into the company's numbers and seeing what we can do uh, to adjust EBITDA, right? Because a lot of times private companies will take, um, will expense things that are within the legal bounds, but a company that's buying them won't, you know, won't have those same expenses. And so we want to back those expenses out which is going to increase EBITDA, right? So we're going to we're going to go through a lot of these kinds of factors or analysis uh, with the company to try to um, you know try to make sure we're applying the right multiple to the right financials uh, in coming up with our valuation for the company. Oh, the final the final thing we do is a discounted cash flow analysis and. Um, you know, there's a little bit art and magic to all of this, or art and science, I should say, to all of this. Uh, you know, we're DCF. Um, you know, you're you're projecting out. Generally, we like to go out five years. You're coming up with what's called a terminal value, which is some kind of multiple. Generally, uh, you know, we're applying to that fifth year, either the revenue or the cash flow, and then we're discounting everything back to today's dollars and. You know, so we come at it really M&A, public company, uh, DCF would be our primary tools, um, you know, to, to triage, if you will, or triangulate on a value. We've talked about some of the factors that enhance a business's valuation, but can we do a little inverse thinking here and talk about the factors that may have a negative impact on valuation when buyers are looking yeah, I would say there's a couple of them. I mean, the obvious ones would be you're in a, you're in a legal situation, which might be one of the reasons why you're choosing to sell. But but those um, legal situations, you know, unless there's something uh, where you get real comfort that it's either going to come to a cl close and you have a high degree of confidence, a really high degree of confidence on 
um, what the outcome is going to be, you know, they can hurt you. Real lumpy financials can hurt you. Deteriorating, uh, you know, gross margin and cash flow can hurt you. Um, turnover on the, you know, on the team can hurt you um, in the senior levels and in, you know, really important levels of the team. But almost any, I think any client-facing level, and if you think about, you know, key leadership position turnover, uh, you know, that can hurt you. Um, any kind of like, com you know, competitive threat where a new product's been announced and it, now it's, it's taking share and you're on the losing end of it is going to hurt you. Um, uh, customer concentration uh, can hurt you, uh, hurt your value, right? Um, we've, got a, we've got a company we're in the early stages of working with right now and, you know, kind of early revenue is with a really exciting opportunity, but it's all one customer. You know, that is higher risk. Um, you know, supply chain issues, you know, we've seen that a lot with, with COVID, right? Um, you know, if you don't, if you don't have the ability to meet demand because you're, you're struggling with supply chain issues, uh, that's a challenge. We, we did have a situation with a company that, uh, they manufacture, uh, you know, key products here, but they also manufacture some more commodity products overseas. And one of their big clients, um, got nervous with product coming from overseas and uh, gave a big promotion to a competitor that was manufacturing uh, in Mexico versus in China. And, you know, so uh, supply chain matters, right? So those would be some of the, you know, some of the, uh, the things that can impact, negatively impact value. Grant, so we've talked about a lot of the things that business owners should think through. Um, can you walk us through just the M&A process as a whole? What are the different steps and what does it look like once you decide you want to sell and who a potential buyer may be? Yeah. So um, another great question. Um, you know, I, I would say you really want to make it a disciplined process and you want to make it competitive. Right. You, you ideally want multiple bidders bidding for your company, knowing that it's competitive and knowing that you've built your team of experts that, you know, they're not going to bottom fish you. Right. Like if you just listen to one buyer, um, you know, and they've got transaction experience and you don't, you know, they they know they. You know, not that they're nefarious and, and want to hurt you, but they just know that they can probably negotiate, you know, at a different level than if you've got an expert team around you, right? So, so first thing is bring your team together, um, engage the team, and then we're going to tell you as the team, here's the material that we want to we want to see. Um, so generally, you're building chemistry up front before you engage with your team. And then we're going to dig deep into the story, into the financials, into the history, what's gone on, um, into your talent. You know, we want to see your org structure, your team. We want to understand if there's turnover. We're going to look at every moving part of your financials, 
right? And and we're going to see where things are moving around. We're going to dig into that and understand it. Um, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the buyer, right? We're going to look at litigation or legal. We're going to look at, you know, your your corporate documents. We're going to look at supply agreements. We're going to look, and we're going to have your lawyers doing a lot of that work, but just making sure that we've really uncovered anything that we think could be um, a gotcha by a buyer. And not to say that they'll walk away, but we don't want them to have, uh, you know, a lot of things that they can use to try to negotiate a lower price. So we're going to try to understand everything we can. Um, and, you know, so this beginning part is really a deep dive into the company, uh, into the story, into the financials um, with the team. And then we're going to develop your presentation with you. Right. So after having gone through that process, we want to develop the presentation that puts you in the best position of success. It's your story. It's your truthful story. Um, but we want to help make sure you're identifying the best of, you know, of the company and the best of the team, uh, you know, and the best of the opportunity. Right. Um, then we're going to develop a target list of potential buyers. And. Um, we're going to set a calendar in place. So, you know, basically we're going to build a, uh, a teaser, which doesn't name who you are. Um, we're going to go out to that potential buyer list with the teaser. The teaser positions you and the industry in a good position, but it doesn't name you. It's confidential at this point. When we do that, we're, we're going to um, see if the party is interested and if they if they are, they're going to sign the NDA, and then they know they have. I'm talking general terms here. Everything is unique to the, you know, to our client. They're going to have approximately, you know, I'll just say a month to get back with an indication of interest. We're interested. Here's the valuation range. Here's generally the structure, and here's how we'd finance it. Right. Then we're going to select. Um, hopefully, we've got multiple interested parties, and then we're going to work with you and select. Here's the one or, or couple that we think makes sense to bring in for management presentations, due diligence, uh, and then we'll have them put, you know, kind of final offers on the table. And then, and then with the party we select, you know, you're working to get to a, um, a signed purchase agreement. And there's still negotiation going on there. That's where you really get into the T's and C's, the potential gotchas. Uh, so your lawyers and us together are going to matter in terms of protecting you there. But I'd say the lawyers are, you want to have a strong legal team that has a lot of M&A experience because that's, it's a legal document and we want them heavily involved at, you know, up to that point, but especially at that point. And then it's, um, you know, working toward completing the deal, the final due diligence, the you know, the final structure, the T's and C's are all nailed down. You know, a lot of times there will be a, you know, working capital target or, you know, networking capital target that, um, you know, will be established. So at the close, you know, they'll take a look at where you are and your working capital relative to that target and adjust the price based on that, either to your favor or not. Uh, and then we close the deal and then we all, um, you know, celebrate with hopefully a, a win-win for everyone. Now, we've talked about how you work with clients, especially throughout this whole process, but what are the other options if someone doesn't consult with an investment banker? What 
do it yourself usually? Are there any other options that owners have? Yeah, I would say, you know, generally you see three kind of categories of, you know, of um, potential options. One is the do it yourself, right? It's like, uh, you know, selling your home, um, you know, by yourself. Uh, you're selling your business by yourself. That's certainly an option. Um, uh, you know, the one we've talked about is hiring an investment bank. And you want to hire an investment bank that has experience and, you know, will run that very disciplined process. Um, the other option is a business broker. And, you know, generally, but not always, business brokers tend to, like, you could go to a business broker site and you're going to see a bunch of businesses listed on the Internet. Business brokers aren't FINRA registered. Um, uh you know, generally they work under an exemption. A lot of times they'll have an MLS license. Um, they tend to work with smaller companies, but I've talked to some who work, you know, across a broader spectrum than, than I expected. Um, they're talented people. Uh, you know, they, they care about client success. Um, and they're a critical part of the ecosystem. You know, so generally the way I say it is you, you can go it alone, um, sometimes you may start out going alone and say, well, there's more here than I wanted. I'm going to go hire an investment bank. Uh, you know, we'd rather be involved earlier than later. Um, and we'd rather make it competitive. So we have the opportunity to hopefully bring multiple bids. Um, or you do a business broker. They're still going to take you through a due diligence process. Um, generally they're working with smaller companies and, uh, um, generally they're charging, more because they're working with smaller companies. So for them to deploy their resources, there's opportunity costs and, and so on and so forth. So, um, I think any one of those is fine. I would, I would recommend if you're a smaller company, I would at least talk to some business brokers, talk to some investment banks to see if, you know, if you meet their criteria, if you're a bigger company, I would definitely talk to investment banks and then you make your decision from there. Um, you know, how you want to proceed and, and uh, so those would be kind of the three main buckets I would, I would highlight. You made a comment earlier that when you're dealing with acquirers that know that the seller has an investment bank on their team, they don't like that. Why, why is that? It's cause well, I wouldn't say they don't like it. Um, you know, I think there's, there may be some cases where they wouldn't, but in most cases they would expect it. Right. I, you know, if, if you're a, a company of some size and I'll put you in that higher end of the smaller market, you know, lower end of the middle market. Now, some people wonder, well, what is, what's the definition of, you know, of small market and mid market? I would tell you, if you look on Wall Street and you look at uh, portfolio managers investing companies, they might call a mid-market company a company less than five billion dollars evaluation or less than a billion dollars evaluation right i mean drew you would know this uh, from what you do every day right they might call a small size company a company under a hundred million evaluation you know publicly traded um uh you know company a really small company is trading on the pink sheets you know i call it trading by appointment kind of thing um uh, so we're not talking about, you know, necessarily really small companies, but I gave kind of the valuation range before that, that we're working with or, or kind of the 
revenue and EBITDA or cash flow numbers, um, that would put you in, call it a 15 million enterprise value to 150 million enterprise value kind of range generally, right? So when you're talking at that level, I think most investment banks are going to assume you've got an invest, or I'm sorry, most buyers are going to assume you've got an investment bank, uh, you know, advising you. And I think they're going to expect it, right? And and given that, they're going to they're going to know that you've got some expertise and some tra- transactional um, uh, expertise, uh, maybe even some battle scars, right? Where um, we're going to put you in a better position and not getting caught in some bad T's and C's or you know structure of a transaction that that gives you more risk than, you know, than you would want or that we would think was appropriate. Do you have any good, I know you've maybe shared a few with me offline, but do you have any good case studies that just of clients you've worked with, they come to you, they think they can sell their business for X. They have one acquirer in mind. Uh, They work with a bank. You guys go out, you get a few more offers. All of a sudden they're getting double what they originally thought they could and way more competitive offers coming in. Do you have any case studies on that of clients you've dealt with? Yep. Well, I'm going to give you two, um, you know, two case studies that uh, were just us getting involved. Um, You know, so buyer, you know, comes in, says to the company, we want to buy you. They give a value. Uh, The value is in the um, eight-figure range, but the lower eight-figure range. And, you know, these companies uh, reach out, you know, to us. And um, one of them was a a food broker that brings food in from all over the world. Uh, They're out of of the Midwest. Um, And... You know, they called and said, hey, we got this offer, you know, through our network, we were connected to them. We got this offer. Um, can you help us think through this? And so we grabbed their financial information, heard their story, uh, and we put a um, we put a valuation range on it that was somewhere, you know, the range was somewhere between 70 and 100 percent higher than the offer they got. And uh, and then, you know, they brought us on a call with the with the buyer and the ultimate buyer. And, you know, the buyer kind of played this take it or leave it. And we said, well, we can go out, you know, and and competitively shop this deal. And and we'll do that if you stay where you are. And, you know, we kind of it, it was a good call. Right. Um, the buyer came back and increased its offer. Uh, uh, in that case, it was about 70%. The other case, um, you know, similar kind of deal, an eight figure, uh, offer, um, by a PE consolidator. And although we never talked to the PE, the, the company owner went to the PE after the first offer and he called us and we actually gave him a value that was two X what what the uh PE company gave them the um the uh company owner went to the potential buyer the PE firm and said we think the value's here not there they had high visibility on the revenue too cuz it was contracted 
And, um, you know, the PE company came back and met it. And then, uh, it, you know, in this particular situation, there was a, an adjustment by the state that created a, um, a higher income stream. And, you know, the seller came back and said, well, I've kind of verbally agreed to this. I said, yeah, but the facts changed, right? You now have better visibility at a higher revenue number, you know, definitely go back. And we laid out bullet points to talk to. Uh, you know, he, he ended up getting more than 2x his, um, uh, the, the initial value that was presented by the PE firm for his company. So those would be situations where uh, a company had a buyer knock on the door. That company reached out to us. We got involved. Uh, I think just by us being involved, but also by us helping, you know, either on the phone with the potential buyer or prepare the, uh, the business owner for the conversation, you know, help move the needle. Bill, if people want to talk with you or Galena, what, what's the best way for them to find you and reach out? So, um, you know, our, uh, our website is Galena Capital. Galena is in the Galena Summit, her pass. Uh, uh, Drew, if you put that in the show notes, that'd be great. Um, uh, give us a call or, um, Drew, I can't remember, did I send you a a page with all of our contact information on it. If not, you, I will, not. And you can put that in the show notes. Um, but uh, we'd love to talk to you. And, you know, if you just want to bounce ideas, if you're kind of contemplating or wondering, we're happy to talk to you and, you know, no cost to you. It's just, we love helping companies. And so if you want to uh, just bounce some ideas or think through some things, you know, love to go to coffee, you know, love to meet, Love to talk on the phone and just kind of help you uh, think through things. And um, uh, we go from there. Cool. As a closing question that I like to ask everyone, what excites you most right now? Well, uh, my son's wedding is Saturday. Um, my, old, my oldest and the first marriage in my family. So that's what's uh, a part of what excites me right now. But, you know, when I look at... Um, business, I would say, you know, to take it to a business side, um, I would say good companies can sell in any kind of market. And given the amount of capital out there, although the belts have been tightened, capital is being deployed. And uh, the key is getting your company positioned right. You know, if we see things that would say, don't go out in this market, we're going to tell you that. But uh, good companies positioned right um, with the right potential buyers are getting done. And, and we would love to help you do that. Uh, so, you know, any kind of market prevent, presents opportunities. Um, it also presents challenges. And, uh, you know, we, we love to help companies. So um, that part is exciting. Awesome. Well, thank you, Bill. Appreciate you coming on and we'll look forward to doing it again. All right, Drew. Thank you. Everyone have a great day.